Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. One of the most important stories of 2018 came at the very end of the year, and it concerns whaling. Japan's government announced that it will leave the International Whaling Commission and cease its whaling activities in the Southern Ocean while continuing its activities in its own nearby Northern Pacific waters. So why was this done, and what will be the likely effect on whale populations? And how might other countries react? To help us understand, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Kitty Block, President of Humane Society International and Acting President and CEO of Humane Society of the United States. Welcome, Kitty. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. What exactly did the government of Japan say in their announcement? Well, it was, you know, I think they were hoping not to get much attention uh, because they did it, I think it was the day after uh, the Christmas holiday. Um, But basically, they announced they were going to leave the IWC. Uh, There was some good news in that announcement in that they were going to stop their whaling, killing whales on the high seas. But they also made it very clear that at the same time, they were going to start commercial whaling. Uh, in the North Pacific, and they were going to do that as outside the IWC. Therefore, they basically announced they're going to be pirate whalers. Evidently, there were some warning signs ahead of the announcement. Were you and your colleagues surprised at Japan's actions? It's interesting. I've been covering the International Whaling Commission body for probably 20 years now. And Japan, at some point in time, I'd say every two years, would would make a big threat to leave the IWC because they would try every year to overturn the commercial whaling moratorium, the ban on killing whales for profit. And when they've been unsuccessful each year, they threatened to leave. And so I, it kind of became background noise, to be honest. But this, this past year at, at IWC, they did another big push. This was the meeting was in Brazil in September. And they did another really big push to overturn the moratorium. And it was clear that the majority of countries at the IWC wanted no part of it, that they see the IWC, the body that has jurisdiction over whales, as really more of a conservation body and not um, a body that should just simply regulate killing. So I think at that point, uh, Japan finally realized that they were not going to go be able to go against international will. And this time they left. So it's again, it's not a new threat, but but I, you know, it was it was different this time. The IWC was founded in 1946 to try to ensure sustainable use of whales. But having failed that, a moratorium on commercial whaling was passed and instituted in the 80s. Can you give us a little history on the IWC and its strained relations with Japan over the decades um, and sure. and it's interesting. Um, up until now, Japan is its largest financial contributor, right? Well, yes, because they kill the most whales. Yeah. Um, and and you pay certain dues, but you also pay if you are obviously um, <laughs> killing whales. Uh, the interesting thing is, so Japan was one of the early uh, countries to adhere to the IWC. I think they came in in the 1950, maybe. Um, but originally, in 1946, the countries that were whaling, it was pretty much all whaling nations, 
uh, came together because they realized that they were plundering the oceans and, and killing whales and the quest for oil and, and what have you back then. And so they realized that they needed to band together to try to, back then, to preserve their, their profit in many ways. But the IWC, interestingly enough, has an incredibly forward-thinking, strong conservation language, um, something that the likes had really not been discussed back in 1946 when everyone thought everything was at their disposal and there was an unlimited supply. And so the IWC really did have more than just a regulating whaling mandate. It really talked about, in the preamble, the, the beginning part, talked about the conserving whales for future generations and recognize how important these animals are. And they had a strong, it has a strong conservation mandate to implement sanctuaries, to regulate whaling, to do all of these things. So it it really was much more than just how many whales can we kill uh, to make sure there's still enough for, for the next year for profits. And Japan always was in that latter camp, always just viewing it as can the numbers come back up so we can start killing them again. Um, Actually, sometimes they didn't even care if the numbers were back up. They didn't really pay attention to the science. But uh, the other countries really sort of um, finding more comfort or, or started putting more emphasis on the conservation part of the IWC. And that's really been the way since the moratorium uh, was adopted in 1982, and it actually went into effect in 1986. And so it really changed then. It it changed from a whaler's club um, to a forward-thinking scientific body of nations uh, working together to protect and conserve stocks for whale stocks for future generations, not to kill, but to, to enjoy. And the the body then started looking at whale watching, how to make that, um, as uh, you know, well as you can, looking at other environmental threats against these animals. I mean, it really evolved into a modern treaty. And so Japan leaving now, um, simply because it can't force it, the body back to the days of you know, just killing for profit, is, is a bit obscene. If they wanted to simply quit and leave the IWC, that's their prerogative. But then they couldn't continue to whale. They would have to stop whaling, and they certainly couldn't declare a new new age of commercial whaling. So that really makes their whaling illegal. And so as long as they are going to engage with whales, they have to be inside the body that regulates you know, whaling and, and, and conservation up to a country's shoreline. So it really is breaking with tradition, setting a really dangerous precedent that if you don't like a conservation measure, you simply quit and go out and kill animals on your own as a nation. It's bad practice, and it doesn't show good faith in the international community. Why does Japan continue to capture and kill whales? I understand that it's an economic loser and that few people in Japan really care to eat the product anymore. It's the million-dollar question. I mean, People have surmised different theories over the years. Some had said, you know, after World War II, when they were not in, in, in a good situation, you know, I think there was some language about go eat whales, that'll sustain you or something like that. Or they didn't want to be told by other countries how to manage what they view as their resources, which is 
actually not true. Whales belong to the global commons. Whales are migratory and travel throughout the world's oceans. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to, to really put your finger on. The only good news is that, as you stated at the outset, you're absolutely right. The younger generation absolutely do not associate with, with whaling. They don't eat whales. It's something their grandparents do. And they see this as um, something to, to, you know, in many ways to be embarrassed about. And so over time, um, it will it will change. Um, I just hope it's in time for the animals. And it's, it's tragic that a few who have held on from a previous time are dictating to the citizens of Japan how they should be viewed now. So it's really just a puzzling confusing situation and as you said it is a money loser they're subsidizing it so it's costing taxpayer money to kill these whales that no one wants to eat is there concern that other iwc countries might follow japan's lead uh i mean when you set such a a precedent um people always you know hate to be the first to do something really awful where you hope um, yes, it could open the door for other countries to leave, and then you could have countries just killing whales again at their own discretion, giving you know self-allocating quotas. And where will we be? I mean, the time, given everything that you know, climate change and all the myriad of threats against these incredible mammals, it's not the time to sort of go off in the you know wild west on your own and start killing them. It's the time now more than ever to band together to figure out how to protect these animals. What other sources of pressure can be brought upon Japan to uh, make it curtail commercial hunting? Uh, for example, can the U.S. government do more? Can animal welfare organizations ramp up their campaigns? Or can even individuals help in any way? Um, yes to all three. Absolutely. Uh, the U.S. can absolutely ap- apply political pressure. There is um, a piece of legislation called the Fishermen's Protective Act, um, and they have a provision called the Pelly Amendment, which allows the U.S. to to actually apply uh, trade measures against a country that undermines the International Whaling Commission. And certainly Japan has gone ahead and done that. So we are going to be asking the government to do that. Other countries can certainly get involved as well, putting pressure through their um, administrations to directly apply pressure to Japan. Organizations can can continue to publicize this, talk about this, to get their governments or you know animal protection organizations around the globe to continue to have the focus on their government to keep up the pressure. And individuals, absolutely, right into your um, right into the U.S. government, tell them this is unacceptable. That we need to to get. Japan to stop killing whales. And I think this kind of pressure to bear, I mean, that's what brought the moratorium into effect in 1982. All of these pressures, all of these points really decided, and it got done. And so we really need something like that again. Kitty, what websites can people go to to learn more right now? Uh, Please go to humanesocietyinternational.org or just HSI, HSI.org. And we can have all the information about whales and whaling and what you can do. Well, we're certainly going to be following this very important story. Kitty Block, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for covering this important story. Take care. More with animals today after the break. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. 
Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. So this guy illegally killed hundreds of deer, and a Missouri judge sentenced him to one year in jail. And part of his sentence is that he must watch the Walt Disney movie Bambi every month for the duration of his imprisonment. So the psychopath deer killer, and putting the legality of this case aside, you know, I like to call anyone who gets pleasure out of killing innocent living beings a psychopath. So anyway, this trial has been called one of Missouri's largest cases of deer poaching. This guy would kill the deer and then take only their heads and antlers, leaving the remaining body to rot. Lawrence County Conservation Agent Andy Barnes told CNN in a statement, Barry Jr.'s convictions are the tip of a long list of illegal fish and game activity by him and other members of his family. It is unknown how many deer the main group of suspects has taken illegally over the past several years. It would be safe to say that several hundred deer were taken illegally. So do you remember watching Bambi? It was released in 1942 and was the fifth Disney animated feature film. And in the movie, there's this tragic scene of Bambi's mother being shot by a hunter. So I guess the judge thinks if this killer repeatedly watches this animated movie, Bambi, and notes the scene of Bambi's mother being shot by a hunter, that this will somehow change his outlook on illegally killing deer? And it's going to teach this guy sympathy and compassion and a sense of value for life and the ability to feel empathy? I don't think so. I mean, I appreciate the judge's creativity and his attempt at trying to transform this guy. But this guy's not transformable. He's a person without conscience, disregards the rights or feelings of other living beings. He has shown a blatant disregard for the law. This guy's going to be amused and entertained by the movie. Anyway, there's my two cents. Okay, Lori, here's a completely different idea. I've got an update on the vegan food and dining trends and some data about that. Uh, everyone who's watching this knows how quickly the growth of the vegan market is occurring. And we are going to be seeing more oat milk that's coming up, more use of green pea protein. You're going to be seeing more vegan items in fast food restaurants, more dairy-free yogurt products, and a host of other 
parts of the segment that are really growing fast. The company Beyond Meat, they are really growing fast. They have filed for an IPO, so they're going to be going public soon. And you may not know that Tyson Foods, Larry, Tyson Foods is our nation's largest meat processor. They happen to be a big investor in Beyond Meat. Isn't that interesting? Hedging their bets or seeing where the growth is going to be. In fact, they just added to their investment in Beyond Meat. So that's a really strong indicator, if you ask me. According to Tesco, and Tesco is one of the world's largest retailers. They are the largest supermarket also in the United Kingdom. They say vegan food is the fastest growing culinary trend of 2018. Back here in the United States, Kroger, which is America's largest grocer, they predict plant-based food is going to be one of the top five food trends in 2019. A spokesperson from Kroger said, our customers are finding it easier than ever to incorporate more plant-based fare in their daily diets by choosing to go meat or dairy-free. Whether for a meal, a meatless Monday, flexitarian Friday, or every day of the week, there will be more plant-based options available to power through the day. And the Plant-Based Foods Association, in concert with the Good Food Institute, commissioned a study, and that showed that the plant-based foods market topped $3.1 billion in sales in 2018. So, Lori, what we have sensed is happening in the past few years really is accelerating. So it's very exciting. Okay, thanks, Peter. This is from the website surveyfinds.org, and the survey was conducted by the research firm OnePoll. And it finds that people who own pets are happier, earn more money, and exercise more frequently than those who don't. So it's a poll of a thousand British dog and cat owners over 55 years of age and a thousand people over 55 years of age who don't have any pets. So nine out of 10 pet owners agreed that their animals were good for their health and well-being. And indeed, the survey showed that pet owners logged nearly twice as much exercise, getting a good sweat about five times per week versus just three times per week for the non-pet owners. Psychologist and author Corinne Sweet says the many benefits of pet ownership also include the cardiovascular exercise of dog walking and even the light housework associated with feeding and cleaning up after our beloved animals. Furthermore, the researchers claim those who had a pet were more likely to be married, have a child, hold a college degree, and work the, quote, perfect job. And what's even more interesting is there showed to be a link between having a pet and earning a higher annual salary compared to those without a pet. In addition, pet owners volunteered for charities more frequently than those who don't have pets. Now, another very interesting thing, 46% of the non-pet owners retired early versus 35% of the pet owners. And by the way, we should be saying guardians and not owners here. Yeah. Furthermore, seven in 10 dog and cat guardians feel more relaxed with their pet by their side. Half of these say they never feel lonely. And 16% say their dog or cat brought out their social side. So much so that they say if it wasn't for their pet, they wouldn't ever speak to others. Hmm. And here you go. 31% of owners claim that having a pet gives them a purpose in life. Wow. Healthy Paws Pet Insurance came out with the top 10 reasons for a pet parent to bring their dog or cat to the veterinarian. So starting with the dogs, 
top 10 reasons dogs visited the vet, and this is over a one-year period, June 2017 through June 2018, going from the most to least common, skin conditions was the top ailment seen by vets for dogs at 22%, followed by stomach issues, then ear infections, eye conditions, pain, growths, urinary tract infections, allergies, cruciate ligament injuries. We're too familiar with those, right, Peter? Yeah. And finally, cancer. Hmm. For cats, the most common reasons cats visit the vet is stomach issues at 20%, followed by urinary tract infections, skin conditions, cancer, eye conditions, ear infections, pain, growths, foreign body obstruction, and finally, allergies. So skin conditions, number one issue in dogs, and stomach issues, number one problem in cats. And interesting, both stomach issues and skin problems were one of the top three ailments seen at the vet for both dogs and cats. Some notable differences, cat vet visits for cancer was 12%, and for dogs, cancer was only 4%. Urinary tract infection in cats seemed to be a lot more prevalent at 13% than for dogs, which was at 6% of visits. Also, I find it interesting that although only 3% of visits were for foreign body obstructions in cats, foreign body obstruction didn't even appear as one of the top 10 ailments for dogs. I find this whole thing fascinating. A little bit sad. We have experienced in probably all these diagnoses in all these animals. And uh, it reminds me how many phone calls and how many vet visits we've had for big and small emergencies over the years, Uh, plus a lot of orthopedic surgeries in in our uh, portfolio, right? Right. Many. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Listening to Animals Today, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That web website again is aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. A very interesting legal case in the United Kingdom is brewing, and animal rights and animal welfare advocates there and worldwide are closely tracking it. In March of 2019, a tribunal will decide whether ethical veganism is a philosophical belief entitled to protection under British laws outlawing employment discrimination. I think most of us know more or less what is meant by the term ethical veganism, but as it turns out, distinguishing why someone might be a vegan may be an important element of the case we're going to examine. To explain why this case may become so important to animal law, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Mark Momjian, a lawyer with over three decades of practice and based in Philadelphia. A graduate of Columbia College and Columbia Law School, Mark has been a guest on prior shows of Animals Today, sharing cutting-edge developments in animal law. 
He's an adjunct professor of law at Villanova University Law School, where he teaches family law, as well as an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Drexel University School of Medicine, where he teaches mental health law. Hey, Mark. Good morning, Dr. Laurie. Mark, why don't you lay out the story on this case and explain why are so many animal rights supporters and organizations following it? We know the media coverage has been extensive. It really has been. Uh, the case has been covered in the media, and it's really created what's called a media storm because there are literally hundreds of articles online published about the case, including a recent one in the Washington Post. It's a, it's a labor employment case, uh, but it has a strong connection to uh, animal welfare. An employee of an organization in the UK called the League Against Cruel Sports, ironically an animal welfare charity, uh, discovered that an employee pension fund was investing in companies involved in animal testing. And this employee alleges that he was fired in retaliation for being a whistleblower Mm. and that his dismissal was a result of his philosophical belief in ethical veganism. That's the basic framework of the case. Mark, just so everyone is on the same page here, what is meant by ethical veganism? Sure. They're vegans who object to practices that underlie the production of meat, and they object on the basis of animal welfare, animal rights, environmental ethics. Ethical vegans believe that their eating habits are not just about food. It's about a central way of life, one that embraces a respect for all living things. So ethical vegans oppose all forms of animal exploitation, and they're distinct from dietary vegans, people who eat the way they do because they believe that vegan or vegetarian diets are nutritionally sound. So what is it about this case that makes it a potentially landmark one? People get dismissed from their jobs all the time, and the reasons for their dismissal are often disputed or not fully disclosed anyway. If this plaintiff is successful, ethical veganism would be given a protected status in the United Kingdom, and that means that an employer could not discriminate on that basis any more than he or she could discriminate against an employee on the basis of that employee's religion, marital status, or sexual orientation. So that's the ultimate question in this case, and it's scheduled, I believe, for uh, a tribunal hearing next March to determine whether this employee's philosophical views can be used to um, discharge him. And I think, you know, the, the question here is whether this belief in veganism rises to the level of a philosophical view under British law. And if it does, then the case goes on to determine whether this employee was discharged because of that philosophical view. So under UK law, what will the former employee have to prove to win his case? I think he has to determine uh, two things, or has to get the court to do two things. First, he has to basically argue that his status as a vegan um, is a legal status that is entitled to protection from discrimination. That's the first threshold. Uh, The second part is that he has to show that he was discharged or fired 
um, because of this status. In the UK, there are, I think, about nine categories that individuals can claim uh, that they have suffered unfair or discriminatory treatment. They're like age, race, sex, gender reassignment, and so forth. And if Religion and belief is a pretty wide category. If veganism falls within the religion and belief category that is um, under the protection categories, then this individual can say, well, um, I I want a right to show that I was discharged because of my belief. And, you know, there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of vegans and probably more vegetarians in the U.K. And so people are tracking this case precisely because if the tribunal holds that veganism is a protected class, that will have definitely a ripple effect, potentially not just on uh, citizens of the U.K., but in all of Europe and then maybe uh, other parts of the West. You know, Mark, some might say, shouldn't this employee just have left his job and found something else to do if he did not like the investment choices of his employer? You know, I don't I don't know. Um, My guess is that, you know, people have ethical beliefs. They want the companies that they work for to be aware of uh, things that um, run contrary to the mission of the company. Um, When I was an undergraduate student, our university had invested in companies that did business in South Africa, and there was a huge movement uh, for what was then called divestment as a protest against apartheid. Here, the employee at issue is a zoologist. I mean, he's a a scholar and a a clinician. And... um, He's arguing that the company that he's working for, this nonprofit that has this historic reputation, um, is investing in companies that um, use animals in experiments. So he's saying that by disclosing that information, showing that the pension fund invests in companies that are involved in animal um, experimentation, um, that he was fired or discharged because he spoke out. Hmm. And so that's the center of the case. How does this relate to the law in the United States? Is there an analogous term to the one you used, protected class? Yes. And in the United States, there are certainly protected classes like age, race, um, and other um, ascribed statuses. Uh, But this is a totally new category because the question is when somebody says that I am an ethical vegan and I deserve to be protected from discrimination um, in the same category as race um, or uh, national identity, for instance, that question is going to hold uh, for the future of employment and labor law, depending on what this case says. Now, again, I think this uh, litigation is going to go on, and I think there are fairly entrenched views on both sides. Uh, Both sides, the employer and the employee, have very skilled lawyers, and they're going to uh, basically, you know, address the question of whether ethical vegans um, are deserving of protection under this British Act. And if that happens, it's possible that a similar uh, litigation could uh, come into the, the United States. 
and um, we'll see whether or not it has an effect on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. How is it determined in the United States which entities get that status? I mean, there are Scientologists, Rastafarians, and we all remember the Branch Davidians and the People's Temple. You know, this is a huge issue. What's a religion? What isn't a religion? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are uh, legions of cases where people argued that just because you're a member of a minority or what I would call an exotic religion, that is that really a religion? I think these are developing cases over, um, you know, generations of case law that have been built up in the United States. And clearly, this is an evolving area, right? So that I, I think this is certainly uh, a, a case that's being treated seriously. It's being tracked seriously. Lawyers are looking at it, but so are other people uh, who are involved in animal welfare and just people in general who are tracking the scholarly um, uh, evolution of uh, like, for instance, veganism as a, as a philosophical belief. So this is something that I don't, I'm not surprised at. And quite frankly, I think this is going to be lined up for a very interesting case. But I don't think it's going to end in the spring. I think this the litigation is going to go on. Mark, what are you going to be looking at when the case gets heard in March of 2019? Typically, what uh, lawyers look at are the types of questions that are posed to the lawyers in the case. In other words, uh, when a tribunal is asked to decide uh, the threshold question of whether veganism uh, d- is deserving of protection as a uh, as a particular um, uh, section under the uh, British law, um, the type of questions are the ones that uh, how aggressive are the uh, judges in asking questions about uh, the facts? And as you pointed out, they could ask for um, analogies uh, to religions. Uh, there are certainly people who believe that veganism is not a religion. Um, and you're going to look very carefully at how the tribunal sets up the lawyers in terms of their Q&A. And I think that's one way of looking at it. Of course, sometimes, you know, you hear questions by a tribunal and they may veer in one direction, but then when you get the decision, uh, it's completely different. So you can't rely on it entirely. But uh, to the extent that it's live streamed, and I don't know that it will be, um, I'm going to listen very carefully to the kinds of questions that are posed by the tribunal. Attorney Mark Momjian, thank you very much for explaining all this to us. I'm happy anytime. Uh, best of the new year to you, Dr. Lori. Thanks, Mark. You as well. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. Animals Today is a project of the animal welfare nonprofit organization advancing the interests of animals. We're fortunate to have some wonderful advisory board members, each with a unique and interesting story. 
Now I want to introduce Lori Marino, who's a neuroscientist and president of Whale Sanctuary Project. Lori, tell us about your professional and or academic background and your current position. I am a neuroscientist by training. I, I have a PhD in neuroscience and animal behavior. Some people know it as psychobiology or biopsychology, but it's all the same discipline. And currently, I am the president of the Whale Sanctuary Project, as well as also the executive director of the Camella Center for Animal Advocacy. How did you first become interested in the welfare of animals? I've always been interested in other animals, always, not just their welfare, but also just what their phenomenology is, who they are, what it would be like to be a bat or, or a bumblebee or a cat. And, of course, the, the concern about how we treat them and their welfare and that their happiness uh, or suffering just comes uh, directly out of that. So it's been always since I was a child. Mm. Did you have pets when you were growing up? I did. We had cats. And, you know, once you have a couple of cats, um, you end up having more than that. We, <laughs> we had several, we had something like 17 cats, strays from the neighborhood who we would feed and put beds in the garage for. And it was that kind of thing. Um, my mom was known as the cat lady of 78th Street. And I also had, you know, uh, a lot of, I spent a lot of time in, in the dirt in the backyard in Brooklyn, just looking at insects and other little animals and just wondering about who they were. Mm. Who would you say inspired or influenced you the most? I would have to say that, you know, my dad. But from a professional point of view, I would say Carl Sagan. Mm -hmm. uh, because he embodied the, the wonder of science. Uh, and he also was a person who was unafraid to wade into the ethics of science and the social aspects of it. So he was, you know, my hero when I was growing up. Describe your current activities that benefit animals. I mean, one of the activities is that we are a team is uh, trying to uh, create the first uh, seaside sanctuary for captive orcas and belugas in North America, and we're currently looking for a site to do that. And we hope that once we find the site, we will be able to get some orcas and belugas out of concrete tanks and into this more natural environment that we will create for them. Uh, that, I hope, and I think will be a game changer. Uh, it will provide an alternative to the concrete tanks and the marine parks and the, and the tricks and the entertainment parks that currently, you know, confine these animals for our entertainment. That is the main thing that I'm doing, but I'm also working with Farm Sanctuary to create educational materials for the public about who farmed animals are. We have a paper on sheep that is going to be coming out soon. And also what's important is helping young generations become scholar advocates uh, so that they can use their scientific training uh, to help 
animals, both in captivity and in the wild. Lori, I'll look forward to having you on again to talk about Whale Sanctuary Project, which just sounds phenomenal (laughs) to me. Thank you so much. In your view, what are the most important problems or challenges for animals? The problem for animals, other animals, is, is that we don't view them as individuals with with inherent rights they are still being used and even though welfare considerations come into play and are important the basic paradigm or perception of other animals as things that can be used as long as we don't go overboard in terms of uh you know being cruel uh, is still there. We have to shift to uh, a view of other animals as individuals with their own rights right. um, and rights not to be used. And, I, and just a few organizations are actually trying to shift that paradigm. Considering the animal welfare and animal rights movement overall, Lori, how satisfied are you with its progress since you began working in the field? Well, Again, I think that animal welfare has made some progress, but it is not enough, and it will never actually change things on a larger scale or, if you will, a deeper level because it's still within the paradigm of we can use other animals. We just have to be nice to them when we use them. And as long as we maintain that view of them, they're always going to be subject to our own whims, our own desires, our own needs. We need to, I think that, you know, animal rights uh, is the, the really the only way to to move that needle, and by rights I mean species specific rights and enforceable legal rights, uh, so that no matter what, other animals are protected from use by our own species. That was so well stated, Lori. This is a tough field. How do you avoid burnout or compassion fatigue? I just keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> And uh, feel, of course, it is very tough emotionally to see some of the things you see and know the things that you know. But it helps just to, one, you know, talk to other people who are doing the same thing and know that you're not alone. And just keep going. Just keep doing. And realize that you're not going to save everything and everyone. You're not going to save the whole planet. But you need to just keep doing what you think is important. What advice would you like to offer? for younger listeners? Uh, My advice to younger listeners is to uh, get as much of a training and education as you can in the sciences and in all domains, um, or in, and that includes social sciences and legal sciences, etc., and arm yourself with that uh, with credibility, with knowledge, with uh, training uh, as you go forward, because that is a very powerful way to advocate for other animals. Anything else you'd like to offer? I'd just like to offer that, you know, it's very important that we let 
young people know that, you know, things are not going that well right now, but that uh, it is still important for them to continue their advocacy work and uh, to to try to reach them uh, so that they can make things the best as possible. And uh, I think, you know, we owe the, the next generation at least uh, one, honesty, but two, uh, support uh, as they go forward into a, on you know on a planet that really is is not doing well at all. Neuroscientist and president of Whale Sanctuary Project, Lori Marino. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, Lori. Okay, thanks for tuning into the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.